me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And as you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's sometimes hard to hear portions of your word, and yet it is truth. And so, Lord, will you Give us ears to hear, hearts open to you, and will you cause your spirit to be our teacher, our examiner, our strength, our comfort, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and be seated. So as we continue in this uh, book of 1 John, this first epistle, uh, John was called and is often known as the apostle of love. And yet, these are hard words. He's not cutting slack for people. He is making a dividing line, a sharp dividing line between those who belong to God and those who belong 
to Satan. But here's the thing. I am convinced he is still the apostle of love. Because that's the most loving thing that we can do is to tell the truth and to be so concerned for the salvation of those around us that at any opportunity we have, we make it clear so that those who really aren't in Christ, we, we can't change them, but we can help them to at least know what their spiritual status is and not to be deceived. And, and that's what John does in this passage and really throughout this book. So a little bit of context, just one verse, and that is going back to verse 3, which was at the end of the passage we looked at last week where it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the idea of he being pure the focus is that, that that's our position in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, that is how you are viewed by the Father, as pure. But then he connects that with saying those who thus hope in him purify himself, ourselves, and that's what he's going to flesh out here in terms of what that means. So there is the, the fact that before God, if you are in Christ, if you die today and stand before him, you are seen as pure. Not because of what you've done, we're going to see, but because of what Christ has done. And yet, as long as we are in this life, it is for us to seek to live pure lives before him. And we're going to try to see how that, how that works together. So let's see how John elaborates on this. Um, in this section, he talks about the reason that Jesus came in verse 5, the first portion to take away sin. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So God is perfectly holy, loving, and just. And by the way, John just keeps coming back to the gospel at every point. And here it is again. We have a God who's perfectly holy and loving and just. And how can all of those things, holiness, justice, and love. How can all of those be perfectly fulfilled? Because if that's who God is, and he is God, then they are all perfect. So how do they all fit together? The, the, the place that they all come together is only 
in the cross of Jesus. So how'd that work? Well, Jesus was sinless and therefore didn't need to die for his own sin. He took our sin upon himself and he died for that sin. The just for the unjust. So that the God of the universe who must do right saw sin punished and therefore opened the gates of heaven for those who believe in Jesus. That's it. That's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell there. So the one who was offended provided for the offense. That's unlike anything we know in this world and in this life. He, he then goes on and he, he talks about his nature in the last part of verse 5. It says, and in him there is no sin. So this speaks to the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. It doesn't say there was no temptation of sin. In fact, over in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says this. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Tempted as we are in every way. Why is that? Because he was not only fully God and continued to be fully God and continues to this day to be fully God, but at the incarnation, what we will celebrate at, at Christmas when he took on flesh, he became fully man. So this was not some kind of an illusion like some of the people John was speaking to were teaching. This was a real thing. And so he, he needs to focus upon his nature to remind, look, in him there is no sin. That's the reason he could go to the cross for our sins. Otherwise, he would have been just getting what he deserved. Now that may sound basic. It is. But it's foundational as well. And that's what John keeps coming back to. What is the foundation? The foundation is the gospel of Christ. And then there's another aspect of, of uh, uh, why Jesus came. And that's in verse 8. That's to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if, if sin is the work of the devil, how is that statement even true? Because even in this book, John keeps talking about how we are to deal with our sin. So here's how it's true. Sin was not destroyed by Jesus' work on the cross in the sense that it totally eradicated it in this life. It didn't. So how is it true then? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sam 
Goodwin uh, mentioned the D-Day illustration. Basically, every war has a turning point. And uh, whether it's the Napoleonic Wars, it was Waterloo, the Civil War, Gettysburg, World War II, historians would say it was D-Day. So that didn't end the war. The war didn't end that day. It wasn't V-Day, Victory Day. But in each of those cases, what happened there and on that day made the end of the war clear what it would be. It made it inevitable, the outcome of the war. So that was the case with uh, D-Day. And so a lot of uh, pastors down through the years have said, uh, you know, D-Day is the cross or the cross and the resurrection. Both of those would be true. Because at that point, the outcome of the battle was clear. It was over. And yet, most would say the day, victory day, is at the second coming. When, when sin is eradicated, when it is finally gone. So here's why Christ's work is the first step in, in uh, complete destruction We were in bondage to sin. What was destroyed was the bondage that makes it impossible not to sin. Now, that's a a double negative. In other words, we don't have to sin any longer. The, The Reformation principle was that before you're in Christ, it's not possible not to sin. In other words, what you do is sin because it is not for the glory of God. And then you come to Christ. In Christ, it is possible not to sin. That's where we are now. When we are glorified, when Jesus comes back, when we die, (laughs) it will not be possible to sin. That's the progression. So we are freed from sin's dominion over us. It doesn't own us. We are not its slave if we are in Christ. But we are not freed in this life from sin's corruption. That's why the struggle is still real in this life. So John then speaks to uh, that which is incompatible with our new identity as children of God. He's going he's to say, look, so he's already declared you're children of God. God has said that. And now he's going to say, there, there, there is something that is totally incompatible with that identity. Now, earlier in this series, I, I introduced a sermon by saying there's, there's four kinds of people in, in this room, and you could divide it up even even more than that. But there are those who are Christians and they know it. There are those who are not Christians and they know it. 
And then there are those who are not Christians but think they are. And there are those uh, who are Christians but aren't sure of it. Now, this next section, it's for all of us. But I think it, it is especially addressing that third group, those who are not Christians but think they are or would claim that they are. And what he's going to do here is he's basically going to uh, throw something at them that, that will shock them. He wants to make sure that if somebody is not a believer, not a true believer, that they, they really come to grips with that. They understand that. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Do you see the dividing line there? He doesn't make an in-between. He doesn't make four categories. Children of God or children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he, he gives two tests, obedience and, and love for one another. Those are two tests whether one is, is really a believer. Now let's be clear. You don't become a believer by obedience. You don't come to Christ by your obedience. You don't come to Christ because you love other people. These are two evidences that you are a true believer. So those should come afterward as an evidence. How can we know if we're a believer? This desire for obedience, this desire for love for one another. In verse 6, he, he contrasts living in him versus continuing in sin. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, there's a lot of different views of, of what this means. Uh, rather than go through all the different views, uh, let me, you, you can study the views, get a commentary if you'd like to see other views. Uh, I just want to tell you where, where I've landed uh, it, in I believe that it, it means to continue in sin indefinitely. To continue on indefinitely. Um, one Greek commentator says this. In English, this distinction, and he's talking about to keep on sinning, seems somewhat superficial and even unjustified. But it's not so in the Greek language in which John wrote. In Greek... John is simply saying that although a Christian may sin, and in fact often does sin, it is nevertheless impossible for him to go on persisting in sin indefinitely. If this wasn't so, were this not so, righteousness could not be considered a true test of whether or not one is truly a child of God. You see what he's saying? He, he, he's saying that, that it, it, it's a, if that wasn't the case, if it isn't talking about uh, keeping on persistently uh, sinning and doing it indefinitely, not dealing with it, 
He said, then John wouldn't be using that as a test as to whether you're really a believer. And John goes on, verse 7, and he talks about how uh, it is incompatible with the believer's nature. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, who is deceiving here? Uh, We've spoken of Gnosticism most every week because that's part of what he was dealing with. And, and, you know, you may say, well, I've never met a Gnostic. Well, people nowadays don't really call themselves Gnostics. I'm, I'm sure somewhere someone does. But there are people that still believe like the Gnostics believe. But here's what he was dealing with. Uh, some suppose that uh, their, their position of being in the knowledge, gnosis, that's where, why they're called Gnostics, being in the knowledge had made them perfect. So sin wasn't an issue anymore, and that's what they were teaching. And then others maintained that that sin didn't matter because it couldn't harm those who had once been enlightened. In other words, if you, if you had the knowledge that they, they saw it as a secret knowledge, if you had that knowledge, then uh, sin can't taint you. So it doesn't really matter what you do or how you act. Now, neither position fits with the scripture. The first one is, is utterly blind to sin and its existence. And the second one is apathetic about sin and denies how serious sin is. So John addresses both. To the first, he he declares that sin is universal. Even in the Christian, he says in in 1 John uh, 1.8, to deny sin is to be a uh, a liar. So he's saying, yeah, it exists. It's even there in, in believers. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8. To the second way, he declares what we're seeing here. That, and that is the incompatibility of sin in the Christian. So verse 9, he goes on. Continuing in sin is incompatible with our, our new birth. No No one born of God. He's kind of saying the same thing over and over in different ways and relating it to different aspects of being a Christian. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So this goes back to our identity in Christ. God's seed is in us. We are a child of God. That's what we are. So do we struggle with sin as believers? Yes, of course. We must, if we are true believers, we will. We must not stop struggling with it or fighting it. One commentator put it this way, though. He says, John is not uh, setting before us a terrifying perfectionism. In other words, saying that you got to be absolutely... Uh, perfect in this, but he's demanding a life which is ever on the watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal accepted way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. Do you get it? What he's saying is, is for the believer, 
unlike uh, the unbeliever, where sin is just a matter of course, it's not dealt with. For the believer, because our identity is as one who is, is pure, one who's been declared righteous, then when we break that, when we go against that, it should be an abnormal thing that we deal with rather than us being characterized by it like we were before we came to Christ. So we've talked about continuing in sin. Uh, as I worked through this this week, one thing that, that struck me is that there is a sense that all believers habitually sin. Right? Not in the way John is talking about. Not continuing in sin that way where we do it indefinitely and we we never deal with it. But all believers do habitually sin in the sense that we struggle with it and then we struggle with it again and we continue to struggle with it. So there is that sense that in this life there is that that habitual uh, struggle with sin. So what's God think about that when that's the case for us? When we, we struggle and we attempt and then we fail and then we go to him and ask forgiveness and he promises, yeah, you've been forgiven and yes, I forgive. So how does he look at that? Does he, get, does he get frustrated with us? Does he, does he give up on us? Does he laugh at our efforts? I don't believe any of that for a moment. Let me give you an example. I, I, in earlier years, I would have said this about my children. Now I have to talk about my grandchildren. <laughs> so we have 12 12 and under, okay? And if it's, if it's my birthday or Connie's birthday or sometimes just for no reason, um, they will uh, draw us pictures and send them to us in an envelope. Now, depending on their age, their maturity, there are some that are, are pretty good pictures, there's some that are better than I could draw, okay? And then there are some that are, you know, going to be stick figures. And there are some that, with the younger ones especially, it may just be dots, you know, where they were given something or just lines or, you know, just not much there. What do you think I'd do with those? Do you think that, that I think what a feeble effort this child has given toward me? <laughs> I am so disappointed in these children or just laugh and throw it away. Well, you know that's not the way. I mean, we've got more of those pictures on our 
our, you know, our refrigerator, and I've got a box full of them. And I said, Connie, someday when I don't know anything, just put that box on my lap and I'll just look through these things. Because I, I, I love their effort. I, I know what they were doing. If it was a, a great picture or if it was just dots or just lines or something, this was saying, you know, I want to do this for, for Papa or for Mimi. Because I want to show you we love you. And I'm convinced that's how God looks at our efforts. He wouldn't spurn us. We're all at different levels. We all fail. And none of our lives, the pictures we present to him, are anywhere near perfect. They are feeble efforts at best. But I am convinced that he loves it. And he loves us when he sees us do that. That's why a few verses earlier in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, says, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then he goes on to explain and emphasizes that we are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And here's what we know. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's not rejecting us. So we deal with our sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are children of God. We must act like it. Continue to deal with it. Don't give up. He will not give up on you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're reminded we, we don't deserve to be called children of God. Of course we don't deserve it. But you want to call us that. So Lord, will you <clears throat> help us to act like who you have said we are? Children of the living God. Give us your strength to persevere and in persevering, knowing that you will not reject us if we are yours.
you welcome us. You take joy even in our feeble and often failing efforts. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.